Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you are losing. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting HANGUP to 31996. That's HANGUP to 31996. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 14th, 2015. On this week's show, we will discuss the 1-24 Philadelphia 76ers basketball team and the end of the capital P process of its all-but-cashiered general manager, former boyish wonder Sam Hinkie. Then we'll pivot from the worst team in professional sports in 2015 to the best team in 2016, the juggernaut that is the Chicago Baseball Cubs. Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus will join us for that conversation. Finally, Heisman, Schmeisman, we will talk to University of Minnesota punter Pete Mortel, who was recently named by University of Minnesota punter Pete Mortel as college football's holder of the year. Slate executive editor Josh Levine is away this week. I'm in Washington, D.C. Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca, is holding in New York City, which means I have to take more than three steps to kick the ball. Hi, Mike. Technically, you know, the name of the show is not The Gist with Mike Pesca. It's just The Gist. With, oh, we know that. With Stefan Fatsis. But we don't, we don't name that part, and you've never been on the show. So it's really a misnomer. Mm. You ever notice a lot of people say misnomer? We, we knew when that they it was mean, a misnomer. Yeah, but people use the word mistake misnomer wrong. Yeah, they when do. they mean mistake. Yeah, and yeah. it's one of those. Yeah. I, I usually forgive mistakes, but when it's people trying to be highfalutin, when you overfalute with yeah. your mistakes, I, I look mm-hmm. uh, askance. Can you underfalute? 
Yeah, you, you could subfalute. There is a lot of subfalute. Subfalutin is when this is Josh's biggest pet peeve. When announcers purposefully don't pronounce guys' names right, like you don't have that hard a job. You know, it's uh, Musi Tuatopo. Whatever, is that his name? Something like that. All right, with Mike in New York at the studios of Slate, the magazine is Mina Kimes of ESPN, the magazine. Mina, how does it feel to be back on the Foam Finger Baby number one sports podcast in all of the land, according to a list put together by a guy who writes for the website Awful Announcing? Thank you, guy who writes for Awful Announcing. Suck it, men in blazers. You're number two. Mina Kimes, <laughs> welcome. Thanks. Yeah, I'm delighted to be back, although Josh has some pretty big shoes to fill. Literally, enormous. The man is like eight yeah. feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's huge. Big floppy feet. Very big. Wait, if Awful yeah. Announcing yeah. names you number one, does that mean, what does that mm-hmm. mean? Does that mean we're the most awful? <laughs> How does that work? This means we're number one. Mike. Does he think Just we're good? Number one. Or we I epitomize that which is awful about announcing. We're good. All right. Bill okay. Simmons was number 10. Bill Simmons was number 10. What does that mean? That's Again, I, that doesn't it help me in context. It means he didn't do any podcasts this yes. year because, yes. you know, he got fired. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's move right into NFL Whimsy Watch. And <laughs> Mina Kimes, this is, this is Whimsy Watch for you. Charlie Whitehurst, <laughs> your favorite player, your hero. Clipboard yes. Jesus played on Sunday. He went two for eight for eight yards and threw an interception. It was quite a performance. Twitter was all over it. I'm going to read a few Charlie Whitehurst tweets. Brad Evans from Yahoo Sports. Clipboard Jesus sighting. Charlie Whitehurst about to enter Colts game for injured Matt Hasselbeck. Pray for all indie wide receivers. <sighs> TJ Matheny tweeted, wow, Charlie Whitehurst is in for Matt Hasselbeck. The universe really is just a circle, huh? Bobby Big Wheel tweeted, as a Jew, I believe that Charlie Whitehurst is a very wise backup QB, but not the backup QB messiah. <laughs> I tend to agree with that. You know, I think that's good. Uh, Wayne Glensky, I'll give Andrew Luck my kidney if you promise he'll play next week. I can't watch Charlie Whitehurst play QB anymore. That's a little harsh. Don't you think, Mina? Can you come to Charlie Whitehurst's defense, please? Yeah. So the backstory for this, obviously, is that last time I was on this podcast, my after balls was sort of a, you might call it a love letter Mm -hmm. to Charlie Whitehurst. Mm -hmm. Um, As a result, I've developed something of a reputation as his number one fan. So when he came into the game last night, or last afternoon, rather, uh, a number of people alerted me to the fact on Twitter. It's kind of like, you know, when they choose a pope and there's white smoke, in my case, mm-hmm. there's Whitehurst. Um, so pe- people were very excited on my behalf, and uh, I didn't even change the channel. But I was delighted to see that he went two for eight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, did his job. Hey, he completed two passes. He did. You know, my he goal is to be the Charlie Whitehurst the of this pod, where yeah. when I come in, it's kind of random. A small subset of people are pleased, and mm-hmm. most people are just a little confused. You don't have a Charlie Whitehurst alert set. You have to rely <laughs> on just democracy to alert you. You would think that's pretty specific. I, I know, know there's not an app for there out there already, but it, that'll be a good app. It's like a great if you're business a huge idea, fan yeah. of what obscure player, right. and you need to know he's in the game, it up. pretty much only would work with backup quarterbacks because everyone else cycles through. That's why you love him so much. He's the one guy who makes millions of dollars and doesn't really have to do anything. It's more, yeah, it's his vibe, his persona, the way he lives his life. But I agree, it's Man, an excellent it's his business hair. idea. Yeah. It's and his, his hair. hair. Yeah, obviously, it's his yeah. hair. Do you think there's a Whitehurst McConaughey overlap? I think there is. I. I feel like they're friends, but I'm sure I'm making that up. It could be. Though. Maybe it's just no, a I don't dream I hear, had. I don't want to hear Charlie, Charlie Whitehurst talk because I'm afraid I might be disappointed because I do have a, a, a McConaughey thing in my head. He has a southern, an accent that's similar, I will yeah. say, having heard him talk. Humble brag. 
he humble brag. She's heard him talk. <laughs> he followed me on Twitter, guys, after the Hang Up and Listen podcast because people were like, Charlie, yeah. wow. he has not that many followers. People but were he like, has people. He doesn't have followers, but he has people. He has, he has deep fans. You yeah. know, if you're a Charlie Whitehurst fan, you're like a real fan. Are you guys Whitehurst Nation, the Whitehurst <laughs> Army? Yeah. Uh, gosh, I have to think of a good name for us. A good hashtag, right? Yeah. 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 That's your assignment. When he's in, there's the whitewash, right? (laughs) Hashtag whitewash. And it's all over. My only uh, whimsical thing is not even happened in the games. It was reading the Green Bay Packers quotes about how they practice the Hail Mary. Yeah. <laughs> like trying to give trying to give themselves credit for, you know, this isn't just luck, mm, guys. I mean, Rodgers is a very beefy tight end and he got into good position. But yeah, it's just luck. And the difference between a practiced Hail yeah, Mary and an that. unpracticed Hail Mary, I wouldn't guess it would be that big. Isn't the whole point of the Hail Mary to not practice it? Sort of, you can't script the Hail Mary. It's not scripted. It's the fun of the Hail Mary. Well, you know, there's Run teams around. who come out it's with like, the first. It's, it's, when you're, it's like when you're 10 years old. Everybody go out. That's the Hail Mary. You come out with the first 15 plays. I'd like the team that ends the game with the last five plays scripted. And there's always a Hail Mary. And they don't deviate even if they're up by 23. Now that would be whimsical. If you want to practice, right, hey, bar- wait a minute, wait a minute. Great point. You can't replicate game situations. So aren't teams, especially when they have more than a touchdown lead with a second left, why don't they throw Hail Marys just to practice it in a game situation? You know, I think there's been more successful Hail Marys this year than in recent years I read in the New York Times this weekend, maybe. Well, there's 33 last, uh, I think there's been 33 last-minute comebacks. Last-minute comebacks. Since 2010. And there were 33 in the entire decade before that and in the entire decade before that. So Mm. there are twice as many last-minute comebacks. As a function of poor defensive play? It's funny, that article, this is pretty whimsical, that article quoted, you know, all the reasons why. And it's just like a grab bag for put everything that's changed about the NFL. (laughs) So Dan Campbell's talking about practice time and how the tackling's bad. It's like, wait. What does that have to do with nothing? It has to do with nothing. Exactly. Any excuse to complain about decreased practice time, though? Yes. You know, by the end of Well, actually, yeah. Campbell actually said, you know, practice time, and you got to drill these guys to step out of bounds yeah. without the practice time. They don't know that. Wouldn't that hurt your comeback chances? Anyway, Dan Campbell has gigantic arms. All right, now we will never do our Hail Mary segment because we just did it. Yeah. Uh, on our bonus segment, however, for Slate Plus members, we will discuss Daily Fantasy. Mina Kimes hung out with some Daily Fantasy bros. Mike Pesca has some Daily Fantasy stories to relate. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com slash hangupplus. Sports Illustrated media writer Richard Deitch recently asked four Philadelphia 76ers beat reporters what it's been like to cover the team. A few excerpts. The game stories are identical and meaningless. How many times can you work tank into a lead? The fans have just tuned out. Access hasn't been the Sixer strong suit. I think nationally, this organization is viewed as a joke. General Manager Sam Hinkie took over the Sixers three seasons ago and implemented what was hailed as a system-busting strategy of accumulating top young players and draft picks, one of whom would maybe turn into a generational star and who in combination would form a dynasty. Instead, the strategy has wound up looking random, amorphous, and pathetic. And after losing on Sunday night in Toronto, the Sixers are now 39 and 148 during the process. 
which works out to a winning percentage of 208. 76ers owners appear to have grown weary of kicking the can down the road. Last week, after consulting with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, the team hired the former owner of the Phoenix Suns and the current director of USA Basketball, 76-year-old Jerry Colangelo, who is as heavyweight an NBA management type as you can get. They designated Colangelo chairman of basketball operations, which seems like a slightly more important title than general manager. Mike Pesca, the process is rooted in the idea that mediocrity isn't worth it. The Sixers had won one playoff series in 11 years, but it looks like the team isn't even trying. Fans want the team to try. So is the process dead? The process isn't dead. Everything that Hinky does is a direct outcome and outgrowth of a flawed process, meaning the rules that the NBA had. They had imminently exploitable rules. They had a really flawed way of incentivizing winning and losing. They didn't take the necessary steps to disincentivize tanking. They thought they did. I- I'll excuse them for when they went to the lottery, when they went from, all right, the last place gets the first pick to now we'll make it randomized. But they didn't understand human nature. And if you have a, if you have no chance of winning, what would you do for a 25% chance at the first pick? It's exactly what you'd do for a 100% chance because it's better than your current lot in life. So everything the Sixers are doing is a direct consequence of the rules that the NBA has. And the NBA could do a lot to tinker around the edges, like force Jerry Colangelo, a guy who's used to picking the dream team, not playing with the worst team. They could force them on him, but they really need to reform their own house. I hope a lot more teams, in fact, the only thing that I was going to say, I hope a lot more teams do it, but if a bunch of teams all race to the bottom, then that will, it winds up being like a reverse Nash equilibrium or something. That will disincentivize all the teams from racing to the bottom if they got three other teams that want to uh, lose as much as they want to lose. I have, by the way, no problem with what the Sixers are doing. I think the only tightrope that Sam Hinkie has to walk is getting the fans to believe in it for as long as they have. Yeah, I mean, and the crazy thing is they had the chance to change it last year, and they didn't. You remember? I mean, uh, it was the Thunder, right, who led the faction of small owners because they all want the chance to do the same thing, especially with, you know, the huge cap expansion coming up. A lot of these teams know that they this is going to be p- perhaps one of the only ways in which they can land a top guy. So they're looking at the Sixers, and they hate it, and they're pressuring Adam. So, and, you know, he can say that he w- didn't have his fingers all over this, but he set up the call, he set up the meeting, whatnot, right? Right. And they're complaining about it, but they didn't change it when they had the chance. So, you know, it's kind of like, what do you expect? I agree with Mike. What do you expect to happen if this is what the incentives are? And with the, regards to the process, I mean, you know, how much is it actually a failure of the process and how much of it is a failure of just execution or luck? And, how you know, would we be speaking differently about it if it had worked? It's like always the case in sports, right, where we complain about what happened, but really only because it didn't work. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's some basic failure built into this way of thinking because it seems to me like one of the fatal flaws here is that there's a lot of sort of grass is greener overthinking on the part of Hinky, um, mm. deciding how a player is going to pan out before he's given a chance to pan out, pan out. I mean, think about what they did with Michael Carter Williams. They took him with the 11th pick in 2013. He won Rookie of the Year in 2014. And then they traded him to the Bucks because they could get a top three protected pick from the Lakers. So it's all lottery, lottery, lottery. And it's this kicking the can 
man down the road. I mean, it looked like Hinky just decided that Carter Williams wasn't going to be the dynastic player that he wants, you know, the LeBron, Kobe, um, KD kind of player. Um, so let's move on and try to get the next lottery pick. You could do this ad infinitum. And the frustration, I think, that the fans have in Philadelphia and that the NBA front office had and finally acted upon and ownership in Philadelphia had and acted upon is that you have to present the fans with something palatable while you do this. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the next segment with how the Cubs rebuilt the organization. They did it in a way that didn't alienate the fan base. And what's happening in Philadelphia is that they've alienated the fan base. And regardless of whether you think this is a result of the NBA rules being what the NBA rules are, it is an alienating process that weakens one of the, the very few franchises that this sport has you know we alienating the fan base the knicks alienated the fan base when they picked that giant foreign stiff porzingis right but wait a minute the fan base was freaking wrong then again sometimes the fan base is right like when they settled for jordan hill instead of steph curry i don't know if they could do anything what i'm saying is the knicks fans booed both times i think fan bases for the most part want winners and they'll take a little bit of losing if you could sell them on the fact that winning's right around the corner i think sam hinkey has got a really good shell game going his only constituency seems to have been the owners and the owners are fine with him doing what he's doing and by the way not anymore by the way the michael carter williams trade is a good trade Mike Carter-Williams doesn't seem to be, like you say, a generational player. He seems to have a lot of flaws, especially with his offensive game, especially with the way the game is going, you know, spacing and shooting. The knock on the Sixers is that they win every trade, but look at their record. But we're three years into the experiment. I don't trust Sam Hinkie necessarily. If I were a fan, I, I wouldn't trust him to be a good steward of anything except playing, you know, managing up and continuing on in his job. But if you could trust that Sam Hinkie really or whoever is in that role really was going to pull the trigger and go for it at the right time, I think it would still be the right thing to do. Yeah, I think you make a good point, which is we're three years into this. And what if it's a four-year plan? I mean... They've stockpiled all these draft picks. They're coming at a point when that's going to be very valuable because of what's happening with the NBA. The question is, you know, do fans have a tolerance for three years of this? You know, if you were a football team and you knew Andrew Luck was around the corner, the number one pick was definitely going to be a top, you know, franchise-changing quarterback, would you want your team to go 2-14? and 14? Absolutely. You wouldn't want a mediocre team. You would absolutely choose this. Would you choose it three years in a row? Right. Maybe not. But then again, well, would you okay, want to go thirty nine and one hundred and forty eight? Ask the Houston fans. Ask the Denver mm-hmm. fans. Sure, they've had some good times, and there were times over the past few years where they looked forward to watching the highlights. Like, how big a deal is that? I'm just. I would just say that winning a championship or getting to the finals is orders of magnitude more important than having a winning team and losing in the first round of the playoffs. One satisfies. I'm not the- sure that I agree. I, I'm totally, I think I'm really having sure a championship team is something that kids remember. It's something that forges a generation of fans. It's something that pulls in people from the city who barely know that the team exists. Uh, you know, entire an entire uh, civic groups organize around it. Having a good basketball team fills an arena and. By the way, these are private businesses. You could run your private business like you want. The NBA knows that it's a collection of 30 private businesses, seems to have a bug in the system, and it's blaming the bug. 
Well, but if the point of professional sports franchises is to provide entertainment to a metropolis, having four or five or six consecutive years of pathetic teams, deliberately pathetic teams, I might add, isn't really good for that. And it's not good for the owners. Look, owners also know that these franchises are worth multiples of what they paid for them, even if they bought them recently. The 76ers are worth a lot more than what Josh Harris paid for them just a few years ago. Uh, Zach Lowe had a good piece on ESPN in which he talked to a bunch of GMs who told him that you'd need to tank aggressively for six or seven years in a row in order to guarantee getting a generational type player. And hey, maybe that's Ben Simmons from LSU. You know, could be. Maybe one of the four first round picks that the Sixers might have could turn into that player next year. You know, and maybe Nerland's Noel or maybe the guy in Europe that they traded for on draft day a couple years ago will finally come over. Maybe these pieces will work together. But if I'm a fan of this team, if I'm being asked to spend tens of thousand dollars to buy season tickets or to buy a luxury suite year in and year out, I want to see some evidence that we are getting better, that this is a concerted effort, and it's not, like you said, Mike, a shell game. You know, uh, yes, I guess if you're a season ticket holder, that sucks. But I think most fans, when you say a fan of the team, we're not talking about the 5,000 people, 10,000 people slash corporations who are season ticket holders. And also people are season ticket holders for reasons other, you know, all the big businesses in Philadelphia are going to be season ticket holders. We're talking about the fan who can elect to go on a Thursday night to a Sixers game or on a Thursday night to the opening of The Force Awakens. And yeah, the Sixers aren't going to draw that person away. But look, I'm a fan of the Knicks. From 2001 to 2010, they didn't have any winning seasons. They came closer to 500 than the Sixers do. What do you get for that? You got The Knicks got nothing for that. So I'd rather be building towards something over a couple years than mm-hmm. executing nothing over 10. And, yeah, to guarantee a generational player, that's true. But that's the same sort of thinking as... Uh, the difference between a guaranteed first pick for the worst record and 25% chance at a first pick if you're in the mix. You don't do it because you're guaranteeing yourself a generational player. You do it because it's the only way to get in the mix. And you look at what the Supersonics, then Supersonics, did with Durant, and it seems plausible. And so Joel Embiid could have been that guy. How do we How do we know about a person's health? You know, you take flyers, and if you take no, no they knew intended. about his health. They knew he wasn't going to play the next year. They knew he was hurt then. They also knew that Orleans Noel wasn't going to play the next year. Yes, but they don't know that he's going to be, you know, as unhealthy as he's been his whole career. And this was Joel Embiid. If he was going to be healthy, he would definitely be a number one pick. This could be the greatest guy. A team that had the luxury of saying, we don't even need him this year, was the Sixers. It seemed like kind of a genius pick. A team that rode off a year can get Embiid and sit on him like an asset. So I think they've actually been unlucky with uh, the way they've been doing it. And I have very little sympathy for the idea idea of this hypothetical if you're a Sixers fan. If it all worked, I think they've been unlucky. If they were just a little bit on the lucky side, if it all worked and you'd get them playing for a championship, not one person would be talking about, oh, remember back in 2014 when, you know, the arena was half full. I would also say I don't think Sixers fans are the angriest people in this discussion at all. I mean, people in Philadelphia. Yeah, well, I know that. yeah right. Eagles fans, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, when you if you criticize, when NBA writers criticize the process, they come out in full force. It's like a cult. I mean, they, they're really sold on it. The people who are angry are beat writers who are forced to sit through these games, understandably, and the other owners who are angry that a large market team is contributing very little to the revenue sharing. 
not angry enough, they'll, they'll change the system, right. but angry enough to where they'll probably knocking on Adam Silver's door, or rather calling him. I don't think any of them actually are going to. And Calling say, him on speed dial. We could, spike, we could update, skyping him, yeah, we'll update him. the idiom Sending to like 1989, right? right? <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and that's why we've got Colangelo and Mike D'Antoni coming in. You know, like, that's what that's reflecting. It's not the fans. You know, Adam Silver's not drowning in letters from angry Philadelphians. It's the owners. I don't know that I... I'm not sure that I agree with that. I mean, well, I sure think that people, like like the beat writers say, fans have tuned out. Like, the last thing yeah. you want is people tuning out of your out of your organization. Um, sports teams are for people to watch on television, in arenas. Um, how long can this go on? I mean, I think what we're seeing is that ownership is frustrated. Agents certainly are frustrated with Sam Hinkie, whom they described as uncommun, whom they describe as uncommunicative and a little bit arrogant. Um, Colangelo has already begun the process of changing the process. Um, you mentioned Mike D'Antoni, the former head coach. He's 64 years old, longtime associate of Jerry Colangelo's. He's likely to join the staff. Hinky had hired a lot of younger guys with sort of analytic backgrounds. This could bring in more people with player development type backgrounds. So we're going to see a change here. And if that's not a repudiation of what the Sixers have done, I'm not sure I know what is. But for now, the Sixers are really terrible. We can all agree on that. So let's play a little game, a little quick lightning round. Who is a member of the Philadelphia 76ers? Who's a member of the Delaware 87s? All right. Who are their D-League affiliate? Ready? Here we go. Mike Pasca, Rashawn Holmes or Jordan McRae? He's a Sixer. Sixer? Okay. That's correct. Mina Kimes. Jakar Sampson or Carl Landry? Who's a Sixer? Oh, uh, Landry. 87er. Sorry. (sighs) Mike Pesca, yeah. John Bohannon, 76er, 87er. Well, you know, he goes up and down. He's actually an 82er. He's kind of a tweener. <laughs> so, uh, 87, 87. Bohannon's an 87. 87. Good good call. And finally, uh, Mina, yes. Christian Wood, 87 ah, Wood. or 76. What's the knock on Wood? No, no, no uh, long game. The fact that Mike knows his name makes me think he's a sixer. Mike didn't really know his name. Yeah. <sighs> He just wanted he just wanted to make a knock on wood. Oh, he is a seventy sixer no. though. Yeah. All right. Uh, now time for a word from our first sponsor, Mile IQ, from appointments with clients, meetings, errands. Unless you're chained to your desk all day, like Mike Pesca, who is Slate's Jacob Marley's ghost chained to his desk, then you're one of the sixty million Americans who drives for work. Driving for work is a double-edged sword. Either you're spending too much time tracking every mile or you're guesstimating and you end up losing money. But if you're driving for work and aren't already using MileIQ, then you're losing money fast. That's because MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. It's easy to use and keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. More than a million Americans trust MileIQ to automatically log their drives every day. And they drive a lot. The average Mile IQ user logs $547 a month in drives. That's more than $6,000 a year in miles you could be claiming. Mile IQ has a five-star rating in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles. Stop losing money that you should be redeeming. Mile IQ does all the work. You can download the Mile IQ app for free and start your free trial right away. Text hang up to 31996 to start your 40 drive free trial. Create an account this week and you'll get 20% off an annual plan. Standard messaging and data rates apply. Text hang up to 31996 to start your 40 drive free trial. 
Congratulations to the Chicago Cubs for winning the 2016 World Series last week. The Northsiders signed free agent outfielder Jason Hayward, infielder Ben Zobrist, on top of signing starting pitcher John Lackey. With unanimous National League Rookie of the Year Chris Bryant, Cy Young Award winner Jake Arrieta, et al., the Cubs arguably do not have a weak spot. One other thing they don't have, a single player on their Major League roster who was with the team four years ago when Theo Epstein was hired as general manager to do what he had done in Boston, bring a World Series to a franchise that hadn't won one in a very long time. Joining us now to explain just how the Cubs won their first world championship since 1908 is Sam Miller. He is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and the co-author with his effectively wild podcast co-host Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team, which is to be published in May. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you. Uh, the Cubs won 97 regular season games in 2015. They beat the Pirates in the wild card. They beat the Cardinals in the divisional series. And then they got swept by the Mets in the NLCS. One of your BP staffers, Sahadev Sharma, wrote after the Jason Hayward signing that the Cubs have improved on their three primary stated weaknesses, starting pitching depth, contact situational hitting, and outfield defense, and have done so by spending money and, 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 and completing one simple trade. How good are the Cubs, Sam? Will they get even better? Will they win the World Series next year? Well, they were already really good. I think we had them as the be- I think we had them as the best team in baseball last year by third order winning percentage, which basically looks at the way you played at a kind of more micro level and tries to strip out luck and various issues like that. And so they were already a, a fairly elite team before this. They were also a team that clearly had a upward trajectory because of the youth on their side. They were also a team that was spending well below their means given their market, and so they had a lot of uh, you know, it seemed like a lot of money that they could flex on this uh, winter's market. And they also had overlapping youth, which meant that they would be able to trade uh, some very elite prospects for the final pieces without even really necessarily missing those prospects. And they still haven't had to trade those prospects, which is one of the more amazing things. I mean, this is maybe the one team in baseball that could go out and get Jose Fernandez in the next week. Uh, without completely crippling some part of their team or organization. They have the pieces for that. And you're right that there's not really a weak spot on the team. If there is anything kind of like a non-elite part of their team, right now it is probably the middle of their rotation. They're extremely good at the top. They go very long at the back. Uh, But they do have a rotation that could be outmatched in various postseason games. So it wouldn't surprise me if they did go out and get Something like Fernandez or Carlos Carrasco or a name that maybe we're not even talking about yet, but who would be stealthily available for a guy like Javier Baez or Jorge Soler. You know, Sam, I could win. If I were managing, I could get this team to 100 wins. Luckily for the Cubs, I'm not managing. They have the best manager in baseball. So what are the decisions that Joe Madden is going to be called upon to make? One I could think of is you got Kyle Schwarber, great bat, couldn't catch a... uh, Uh, I was going to say cold. What's a better analogy than that? Couldn't catch a, uh, I'm going with like. Sack of flour. Couldn't catch a sack of flour. Couldn't catch a. Sacks of flour are heavy though. Couldn't catch a sack of flour. Yeah. Couldn't catch a uh, guy in an orange jumpsuit in upstate New York waving a gun. Couldn't catch anything that's easily catchable. So Schwarber's bad. And you tell me they have this upgrade defensively. I don't see it. I think 
Fowler's a better defensive outfielder than if Hayward's made to play the middle infield. There's a little slotting there. But anyway, long story. I don't want to lay out all the challenges. Madden's a genius. How are we going to see his genius build him up to 110 wins this year? Well, I think that for the most part, what you're going to see with uh, with Madden, I mean, you're, one thing is that, yes, he's got some players who are either out of position already or who he will ask to play out of position. Hayward has never really been a center fielder. He very well might uh, be asked to do that, which fits with what the Cubs have done over the last half decade, which is they haven't asked for elite center fielders. They have a small center field. They've been happy with pretty much anybody who can play out there. And Schwarber is neither a catcher nor a left fielder, and he will probably play some of both. But with Madden, it's more about, well, it's partly about setting up for the postseason, and it's partly about getting guys out of their previously established comfort zones so that he can use them very flexibly. Madden has always been a guy who has valued flexibility, but especially with the Cubs last year, and I think you'll see it this year, he's got a lot of swingmen on his team, guys who used to be starters who are now being used in a combination of long relief and short relief. He's got players who he's being asked, uh, who he is asking to play out of position in the regular season so that he has the option of putting them there uh, later in the in the season or in the postseason. We saw Chris Bryant playing outfield, for instance, which was, you know, never really the plan until Chris Bryant got into uh, Joe Madden's sphere. And uh, he's going to be doing a lot. I mean, Joe Madden and the Cubs do things in a way that aspires to be statistically optimized. And that means asking players to do things that don't necessarily uh, match up with how they've been used in the past. It means pulling pitchers in the fourth or fifth inning, even when they have a lead, because Joe Madden believes that his bullpen is better than having his starting pitcher go through the opposing lineup a third time through the order. And that is not always a peaceful thing when you're a manager. We've seen the Astros, for instance, who in a lot of ways have been similar to the Cubs uh, in their rebuild, uh, who have had their players uh, rebel against some of the things they've asked them to do. And I think we saw a little bit of that last year when Joe Madden asked his starting pitchers to leave games earlier, uh, and they weren't always happy about it. It paid off in the postseason because by that point, they were used to it. And he could uh, go to Jason Hamill in the third or fourth inning and say, you know, you're done for the day. And this wasn't new to Jason Hamill. It wasn't coming out of nowhere. So uh, that's pretty much going to be where he's going to make his bones. I mean, he's got so much talent that there's going to be some players who are not playing as much as they could elsewhere or who are playing at positions that, that maybe aren't their first choice. And I guess that's always one of those, you know, diseases of affluence when you're a team this good. Uh, but I doubt that will be uh sort of what we focus on with Madden next year. Yeah, Sam. So I guess, you know, one thing that still seems to be causing some debate is whether the Hayward signing was a total home run, um, specifically because the man doesn't hit many home runs. And, you know, it seems like such an obvious win for the Cubs. He's so young. I think he's barely older than Chris Bryant. Uh, Last two years, he's finished top five, I believe, and wins above replacement. And yet there's all this kind of subtle, you know, whispers you're hearing of other GMs saying, oh, I I don't know about that. You know, maybe he he's a great defender, obviously, but do they really need to pay him that much? Uh, Tom Verducci did this great story in SI where he quoted people pointing out that um, Hayward is I think the first outfielder ever who's never driven or scored 100 runs to receive over $100 million. So is this just a case of old school versus new school thinking, guys not appreciating analytics and defense, or do you think they have a point? I don't think it's 
old school versus new school exactly. I mean, every team is basically creating their own model of wins above replacement. And I assume that most of their models of wins above replacement accord uh, with what we see uh, in the public sphere. I think most, uh, pretty much everybody agrees that Hayward is an elite defender. They know that defense is very valuable. They know he's a great uh, Mm -hmm. base runner. They know that despite the lack of power, he's been a very good hitter because he's been in a uh, pitcher's park and that he uh, gets on base well. And he makes a lot I, of contact too, doesn't he? He does make a lot of contact, which in this era is a skill that play, uh, teams are are prizing uh, anew. So it's really, I think, the the tricky thing is that wins above replacement or really any total value stat uh, in any sport uh, begins with this philosophical presumption that. It is not the way that you are good, it is that you are good, and wins above replacement attempts to put all of the different skills that a baseball player can have uh, in balance with each other and assign one number that captures all of it. And we all know that that's what war is doing, and I think that, generally speaking, uh, you know, it is accepted by all 30 front offices. And yet, when you see a player who uh, doesn't do it quite the same way, there is still a tendency to fall back on those those old notions of what is actually more valuable, what is easier to see. And we, I think even though war is the way that most teams assess a player and assess their team strength, there is still a tendency to think that you need, for instance, that you need balance on your team, that it's better to be good at hitting and good at pitching rather than great at one and below average on uh, in the other. And war doesn't really believe that. that The idea of war is the opposite of that, that it is not that you have to win a certain way. It does not have to be aesthetically pleasing. It does not have to be balanced. It does not have to look like the Royals or the Mets or the Giants. It just needs to be good. And Hayward is that good. He is very good. If there is a reasonable reason to uh, doubt his superstar status, it would be that you don't think his defense will age as well mm-hmm. or that you don't think that his defense will play as well in certain parks or with certain teams or that a good coaching staff or a good advanced scouting staff could um, make another outfielder just as good as him by positioning and shifting and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the lack of power is really not an issue. I don't think it would have been an issue uh, if he weren't a free agent and someone didn't have to say $200 million on him. I mean, everybody pretty much appreciated that Jason Hayward was a superstar. He got traded for a superstar price uh, one year ago. Uh, it's sort of surprising to see how many managers were willing to go off the record, but on background, uh, as saying essentially, eh, toward a guy who's you know one of the 10 best players in the game, probably, and one of the 10 best free agents because of his age, uh, that we've ever seen. But that's the beauty of the contract, right? Which is they have all these opt-outs baked into it, I think, when he's 29 and then another one. So they'll really uh, ostensibly get the best of him because they'll be playing for these opt-outs uh, and then the chance to avoid these later years of decline. In fact, I don't know why more teams don't do opt-outs like that. It seems like such a win-win to me. Well, it definitely costs them a little bit of upside on the back end uh, because if, you know, obviously if Hayward is super good and hits free agency uh, at 29 and and is going to make a lot more than the Cubs owe him, they're going to wish they could keep him for those five years. But uh, yeah, I mean, the the amount of risk they're taking on is no greater than it would be if they didn't have the opt-out. And most of the value of a player's contract is going to be concentrated in the first three or four years anyway. We don't know what the breakdown of the salaries is. We don't know if uh, the the prices that the Cubs are going to be paying are uh, on a year-by-year basis low or high. It's conceivable that they are 
not only giving him the opt-outs, but front-loading the contract to make this deal more attractive to him, in which case it's, uh, it is possible that they're giving up a lot of upside on the back end, especially because he's so young. Uh, but it's true. I mean, it's, we're seeing it pretty much become the default for the superstar uh, free agent who hits free agency before age 30, that they will put an opt-out in there so they can cash out one more time down the road. I just wanted to note that upside on the back end was the original name for Effectively Wild. Uh-huh. That, yeah, I was going to say Hall & Oates uh, album. <laughs> it was. Right, with the clapping, upside on the back end. Yeah. All right, so, hey, we didn't, I don't think we mentioned that Hayward signed for eight years and $184 million. There were other bidders out there. But he never, he never had 100 RBI. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nationals wanted him for $200 million. I think the Cardinals also were, were said to be bidding in that mm. range. Uh, ben Zobrist, who was signed to play second base, apparently took less money from the Cubs than he was offered by the San Francisco Giants. What has Theo Epstein done to create the environment that would lead players to be agreeable to taking less money? How extensive has this overhaul been? And is Theo Epstein just that good? In four years, the Cubs go from, you know, having finished, what, fifth in their division, like four years in a row, to being the acknowledged front runners for the World Series and, and, and likely to win 100 games? What has he done? Well, we don't know exactly what he's telling them behind closed doors. It does seem like uh, Lackey and Zobrist and Hayward all signed for deals that were, uh, you know, less than I would have guessed they would have gotten. And it's it's not a stretch to think that they're being sold on the vision of what the Cubs are. And the Cubs are an extremely attractive team right now. If you're a player or a fan or anybody watching the game, they're just they're an attractive winner. They are, uh, you know, very young. They have a manager who does things the right way. They have a team that says all the right things without kind of beating you over the head with it, uh, with their stat headiness. Uh, And they're the Cubs. They might win their first World Series in 4,000 years. It's really like a great, exciting time to follow the Cubs. And to some degree, I think this is a little bit troubling because they are also, uh, in a way, uh, they are like if you were plaintiff shopping for the idea of tanking as a good thing, uh, this would be the Cubs. They are not quite as aggressively as the Astros did. Uh, an example of a team that uh, did things that we would consider not all that sporting to get to where they are right now. And uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, it goes down really easy with them in a way that it doesn't go down easy with the Astros. And if you, like me, kind of think the soul of analytics is uh, being negotiated right now as whether it's going to be anything more than a you know kind of capitalist sociopathic uh, obsession with efficiency, then you're not necessarily rooting for tankers to win. But the Cubs are just so much more appealing than the other tankers. They just have done it in a way that wasn't quite so obviously uh, tacky. And they've done it with a group of guys that are just really exciting to watch. And they've done it not just by tanking, but by having a lot of things go really well for them and doing really well. I mean, they got Jake Arietta for nothing, and that's not a, a result of tanking. That's a result of getting the right guy and then developing him in a way that probably no other team could have done. And they got Addison Russell for uh, you know a player who was not worth Addison Russell uh, and Jeff Samarjo when they traded him to the A's. And that wasn't a result of tanking. That was a result of getting the best deal that you could possibly get. And they've drafted really well, and they've signed great international free agents, and they've done everything really well. And so I kind of hope that this doesn't. Uh, turn into a 
endorsement of the idea of getting really super, 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 super bad and stringing your team along and uh, screwing your players out of your young players out of service time and uh, sitting your starting rotation the final month of the season so that you can draft Chris Bryant and all those sorts of things. And it'll be really interesting to see what the legacy is of the Cubs if they do win or if they don't win. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, if you're Jason Hayward or John Lackey or Ben Zobris, it's very obvious that this is a team that is going places, that has a manager that everybody wants to play for, and uh, that also, by the way, is offering essentially as much money as the other teams did. I mean, Hayward took less, but the opt-outs give extra value to him, and we don't know really what the terms of the deal are entirely. Sam, what you were saying earlier about why are we all so invested in the Cubs, aside from the fact that they have pajama parties and they haven't won and whatever. And I think there's a pretty simple answer for that, which is the St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, when the Cubs get to rob St. Louis and grab someone like Hayward and the Cardinals fans, who obviously have this holier-than-thou reputation, are coming out and they're so salty about it and they're saying, oh, you know— it's kind of like when you get dumped and you say, oh, I never liked you anyways, you know, and they're salty about a one-year rental. I mean, this is why we love the Cubs, I think the rest of America at least. So does that well, does that make the Pirates the Kurds in this? Because oh, everybody likes the, the Pirates too, and it sort of feels bad that they're the ones that are going to get overwhelmed by this insane amount of talent and investment by both teams. And the Cardinals, by the way, if you change the, the name on the shirt and change the logo on the hat, the Cardinals have been the team that, Everybody wishes their team was run like, uh, and that in there's sort of no morally ambiguous uh, aspect to the way they build their team, and they've been consistently excellent too. Uh, so just between those two, uh, you're right. There's a very emotional response to the Cardinals, but those two teams are probably right now the two best run teams in baseball, and they're going to be uh, an incredible rivalry for the next half decade. And the poor Pirates are going to be just sort of limping along at. 91 wins, never getting to play a full series. I think the Pirates are like the animals. You know, are you a Stones guy? Are you a Beatles guy? Actually, I like the animals. Or yeah. the Moody Blues. <laughs> the Pirates are more like the Marshall Islands, I think. They're, They're underwater? Underwater. <laughs> rising, rising oceans are going to submerge them forever. Sam Miller, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Sam Miller is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment, Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. That'll be published next May. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life, and they'll receive all the benefits of membership, ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, access to our ambitious multi-part Slate academies, and so much more. No wrapping required. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. Slate.com slash give plus. I said earlier that Josh is away. You've probably figured that out by now. But he wasn't when we recorded our final segment for this week's show. Mina will be back for After Balls. But for now, here is pre-recorded Josh and our pre-recorded interview. We're very excited about this segment because it's the first time we've ever been joined by a college football award winner. Peter Mortel is a senior punter at the University of Minnesota. He averaged 43 yards per punt this year, which is pretty good. But what makes Mortel special is that he's college football's holder of the year, the best in the country when it comes to catching a snap, spinning the ball so the laces are facing out, and putting his finger on the top so the ball does not topple over. 
the fact that Mortel gave himself this award only makes it more special because anyone can win an award, but it takes a true innovator to both come up with an award and be fearless and self-assured enough to give that award to himself. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we seriously do want to give you props because this is a very funny thing. And it points out how holders really do labor in anonymity. I was thinking about this. College teams, they recruit the like long snappers. They recruit field goal kickers, kickoff specialists, and punters like you. But nobody ever recruits anyone because he is an awesome holder. So how did you get this job? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, as a field goal holder, you really don't get recognized unless you mess up. So, uh, you know, at the University of Minnesota, we, we don't mess up field goal holds. So that's why not a lot of people pay attention to it. But, you know, but really what what broke it down for me in winning the award, um, there's three main things that, that went into it. And first, you have to have great hands. And, you know, especially if it's poor weather with rain or snow, catching a wet ball that's spinning as fast as, it does uh, on field goal snaps. It's a lot harder than it looks. And no gloves, man. No gloves. No, glo- no gloves. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't do the whole glove thing. So uh, that's definitely one thing that I, I think separated me from a lot of the other guys for this <laughs> award. Is, is are my hands. Um, and then secondly, you know, you have to be athletic enough to have the other team fear you of running a fake. And you know, I've been a part of several fake field goals this year. It's not really relevant if they were successful or not, but uh, <laughs> definitely been a part of that. So I, I've been uh, been a, a threat to that. And then finally, uh, you have to be able to hit the spot your kicker wants the ball to be kicked from. A lot of kicks are missed, like due to holders putting the ball on the ground inches away from the delegated spot pre-snap. And that's another thing that doesn't happen at Minnesota. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm honored to receive that award. I really am. There are a lot of good candidates, but at the end of the day, the committee went with me. So I'm, I'm happy. The thing I love about Peter is he doesn't answer the question you asked. He just gives his uh, he gives his talking points. That is a key. That is a key fact for any radio yeah. guest is just yep. don't answer the question. Just say what you want to say. Or, or, or political candidate. So, Peter, you're in good shape <laughs> post-college. I would recommend yeah. a career in politics. Now, as a former kicker, I got to say the relationship with the holder, too, is very important. You want to be close. You have to trust each other. You know, it's really a, a brotherhood, but maybe a little more than a brotherhood. It's really an intimate <laughs> yeah. relationship that you and Absolutely. the snapper, too. But the snapper's usually a big guy. He doesn't fit in always. Um, but your kicker's pretty big, from what I understand. So t- tell me about the relationship you have with your kicker and why that's special and why that also contributed to your winning this award. You know, you spend so much time with with your kicker, um, especially being a punter and, and a specialist. So, uh, you know, during practice, we do our field goal and punt periods relatively early in the practice, probably the first 20 minutes. And, and they then, are exhausting, by the way, so listeners understand? Yeah, no, it, it really is. Yeah, it's it's tough, you know, coming out for the first 20 minutes of practice and then going in for the next hour. <laughs> uh, I mean, that can get that can get tough mentally. It's a, it's a grind. But, uh, yeah, so we get our stuff done the first 20 minutes, and then we have that, that next hour to, to kind of just kill time. So we spent so much time together that, you know, we our chemistry, we have to work on it a lot with the holds, and, and we got it taken care of this year. But uh, it's fun. It's good. We have a good relationship, and I think that's important. So, as you know, the Big Ten names its awards for famous Big Ten players in the past. Like, there's the Amici Dane Running Back of the Year Award. 
the Richter Howard receiver of the year, the greasy breeze quarterback of the year. You ever, <laughs> you ever experience a greasy breeze? It's not a pleasant thing. And I don't have to tell, I don't have to tell you this, Peter, because you are the winner of the Edelman Fields punter of the year award. No. Yes, sir. What can you tell me about the legacy of Dyke Edelman? Oh, uh, I know he's one of the best punters ever come out of the Big Ten. Obviously, uh, <laughs> out of uh, Illinois. Correct. And, yeah, and I, I met his family uh, when I went down to Indianapolis last year, and uh, they're so, so such a nice family. I was really appreciative of giving that award. And um, I don't know, it's just that was probably I won't, I don't know if it was quite the honor that I got this year mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with the holder of the year, but it was damn close. Dyke Edelman, Dwight Dyke Edelman, his photo, his official photo is him playing basketball. He was apparently a better basketball player. So I guess both you guys are double threats. You know, obviously holding is more important than basketball. Yeah, absolutely. And harder. If, so. you had, if we had to name the Holder Award after a famous Big Ten athlete, could we name it Van Pelt? Not after Brad Van Pelt, who is a linebacker at Michigan State, but Lucy Van Pelt, who's probably the most famous holder. She's mm-hmm. the one who, uh, you know, tricks Charlie Brown with the football. <laughs> yeah, we can do that, but I don't know what the ties are to the Big Ten for that. Mm. Well, we'll come up with one. I think oh, guess the, who's the, from Minnesota? Charles Schultz is from Minnesota. We got it right there, done. man. Okay, there it is. The Van, the Van Pelt Mortel <laughs> Holder of the Year Award. Yes. I think that has a good ring to it. Yeah. Also, Scott Van Pelt honored uh, Peter on SportsCenter. So. Yes. True. That was cool. It, it, has, yeah. it has a double meaning. So as sports fans, um, I've, I've never played the game. Uh, as as most of us pencil-necked uh, commentators have not. Most of us. <laughs> most of us. So we need to know as spectators who to blame in any situation. That's really yeah. our role as commentators. So the next time there's a missed field goal or extra point, how do I know? Like, what do I look for to know who to blame, whose fault it was? Always blame the wind. That is what, <laughs> that is what I usually go for. Um no, in all seriousness, if if it's a missed kick, a lot of times it's really not on the kicker. Um, just just from you know bad holds or bad snaps, it, it's tough for for those guys to be able to adjust when when the ball's not where they think it's going to be. And um, I think a lot of times they kind of get thrown under the bus a little bit, and and all the blame is put on them. But um, yeah, no, if there, if there's a, if there's ever a missed field goal, especially if it's longer and the ball's spinning when the kicker's kicking it, then uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be quick to just judge the kicker. There's probably some moving parts to that. Yeah, a little trick I learned as a kicker: a little downward glance at the holder, right as the <laughs> ball is sailing wide, usually does the trick to place the blame on the holder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 definitely probably won't help. Yeah. So of the four that you that uh, you guys as a kicking holding team missed Snapping this year, kicking holding team. How would you kind of break That's down those four misses? That was definitely on the kicker. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, those were. I think most of them were 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 pretty pretty good holds. But yeah, we we need to execute better on those four. We let those get away from us. Of the components of the hold, catching the ball, putting the ball on the ground, and spinning the ball a little bit, which is your favorite? I like spinning the ball. I think I've gotten pretty good at that, and I can I can usually get it spun before I put it down, mm. uh, which is you know, very efficient, and and we save some time there. So I definitely say that you know if you have a good long snapper, you really don't have to do that that often. Those guys are amazing with how they can control you know the revolutions to get this the laces out. Two and a half uh, so revolutions, really, baby. Really Two and a half revolutions. <laughs> yeah, I really haven't had to do that a ton. So. 
Uh, but I, I enjoy doing it, and it, it feels like you're not just uh, out there just to be there. It seems like you actually have an impact on the play. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely sad. You know, there's a little-known aspect, Mike, to the to the to the hold. Also, the tilt of the ball. The tilt. You got to get your tilt right. You don't want you know every kicker likes the tilt a little bit different. Um, yes. You got to adjust. Most kickers a little bit forward. You might not know that because you know when we were kids growing up, everyone wants to tilt the ball backwards because yeah. you think that's going to get yeah. it up in the air more. A little bit forward, actually. Tell me about your tilting Interesting. style. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. You know, we have three kickers here, and, and they all like different tilts on the ball, but. Our starter, yeah, he likes a he likes it tilted towards obviously towards me and then up a little forward and then uh-huh. that gets that sweet spot exposed the most. So it's interesting you and when you hold for other ones in practice you gotta be you gotta understand that and, and adjust. So yeah, it, there's a lot of moving parts. It's a well, grueling, grueling job. It takes an expert to do that on the field without a protractor. You just gotta yeah, eyeball absolutely it. Absolutely does. Often which is helpful. I, I, are you a math major, Peter? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, gonna, you might want to consider that because that would probably help your your tilt, tilt yeah, a lot, tilt maybe, tilt. Maybe vectors. that's why we missed those four. Actually, yeah. now that I think about yeah. it. Yeah. I was going to say, oftentimes we interview a guest, and there are so many aspects of uh, the athlete's profession that remain unexplored. But not this time, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> I like a nice exhaustive interview, Peter. I got one last question. Do you think you're NFL holder worthy? I would hope so. I'd, you know, I'd like to think that you know scouts are taking this award into into effect here, and we can actually you know separate myself from the other holders that are eligible for this draft. Um, I don't know. I think that I bring a lot to the table, not just holding, but I, like I said, in the fake game. Also, if we wanted to do something where we went out for field goal and we actually wanted to do like a punt, I could stand up and just punt it because I have the experience there. <laughs> Um, that is cool. So no, I think I think that I'm uh, definitely capable of holding the NFL on Sundays. You know, you uh, never see that. Sometimes you see the quarterback. You know, some guys who could do it. Cutler could do it, and Roethlisberger. Uh, right, right, Roethlisberger. And, and, and and they could do the quick kick. But I've never seen the field goal into the punt. But why not? It's the same exactly. advantage. There is no man back. Oh my mm-hmm. God! And then and the added benefit, which you always hear the coach, the other team has the game plan for it. It's genius. I know, and they have to take time out of their practice. That's to, right. To, 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 yeah. So I don't know. I'm just seeing a whole lot of, of pros and not a lot of cons, and uh, I just think it's I'm worth a shot. All right. So you can watch Peter the last game of his college career. The Gophers are playing Central Michigan in the Quick Lane Bowl. That's December 28th, 4 p.m. On ESPN too. Is Quicklane uh, a bowling company? Isn't it like Easy Pass? We call it Easy Pass. <laughs> it's like get you get you through the bridge fast. You know what? If you tune in at four PM, I bet they'll have some some advertisements on that bowl game. <laughs> you can figure it out. Peter, good luck in that game and good luck with your pro holding career. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Peter Mortel is a punter at the University of Minnesota and the winner of the inaugural college football holder of the year award. Now it's time for After Balls. On Saturday night, Alabama tailback Derrick Henry won the Heisman Trophy. Can either of you name the first Heisman Trophy winner? Jay Berwinger? Is that it? It is a trick question. Yeah. The award was first given out in 1935, Mike, and the winner was indeed Jay Berwanger of the University of Chicago. But wait, the actual trophy? Do you mean the actual trophy? Who won the trophy? Just just bear with me here. So Berwanger, Berwanger won the award. University of Chicago. University of Chicago would abolish football four years later. 
But the trophy the first year was known as the DAC Trophy after the Downtown Athletic Club in New York, which created the award to honor the best player east of the Mississippi. There was nobody good west of the Mississippi anyway. When football pioneer John Heisman, Pengrad, died the next year, the trophy was renamed in his honor. The first winner of the Heisman Trophy in 1936 was Yale and Larry Kelly. Larry Kelly. Yale. But Burwanger, first pick in the NFL's first draft, owner of the Chicago Bears, George Hallis, refused his demand for $25,000 for two years. So Burwanger said no. He took a job as a foam salesman. Selling foam. Foam. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. Anyway, Burwanger's a much better name than Kelly. Mina Kimes, what is your Burwanger? Uh, my Burwanger, I'm just going to tell a story about a reporting trip I took about a year ago. So I've written a lot in ESPN about being a psychotic Seahawks fan, and I came up with the idea of watching a game with the mom of one of the players on a rival team. It's a great idea. The first person and only person to say yes was Chandra Peterson, who is the mother of Arizona Pro Bowl cornerback Patrick Peterson. She lives in a suburb near Miami. So the PR person tells me, oh, she talked to Chandra. They're going to have a bunch of people over for the game. The publicist even asked me what kind of snacks I want. I'm envisioning a sort of fun, raucous cookout, lots of good-natured trash talk over Chandra's seven-layer dip, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I fly to Miami. I put on a Richard Sherman jersey. I drive to a gas station. I spend a long time agonizing over what kind of beer to buy. I end up bringing uh, one light, one craft. The, be- the best that the gas station offers. Yes. <laughs> I show up at the Peterson's house at about 7.30 p.m., and it's pitch black. When I ring the doorbell, no one answers. I begin to wonder if I have the wrong address. Eventually, Patrick's younger brother is a college student who opens the door. He looks at my jersey, the six-packs I'm double-fisting, and he seems totally perplexed, like I'm a 30-year-old trick-or-treater who got lost. After I explain why I'm there, he reluctantly leads me into the living room. Chandra and her mother, Patrick's grandmother, are sitting there, and it's obvious they've just eaten dinner. And it slowly dawns on me that there has been some sort of miscommunication. There is no one else in the house. I awkwardly offer beers to these two women, one of whom is at least 75 years old, and they politely decline. <laughs> so the game begins. We head to the living room and sit down. By the second quarter, I'm starving. <laughs> I've had two beers. I'm the only one drinking. And I haven't and eaten... And you weigh... Since. Let me, let me, let me uh, bust in and say you weigh 106. How a little more. A uh, little more. Yeah. But I She's felt like somebody had, had to drink these beers <laughs> for this party that I imagined. So I haven't eaten since breakfast. I've been on the road. And I'm one of those people who can't function without food for 12 hours. Whenever I travel, I usually carry snacks and little plastic baggies like like I'm with a toddler, only I am the toddler. So Chandra, meanwhile, sings to my right with an enormous Costco-style bag of popcorn. And for the game, she's like, oh, this is my thing. I always have popcorn. When I watch Lil Pat, she calls Patrick Peterson Lil Pat. That's cute. So she's just plowing through this. And I'm staring at her, trying to silently convey with my eyes how much I want some popcorn. But she's looking at the game. She doesn't notice me. Eventually, she gets up to go to the bathroom. At this point, I realized I'm faced with a decision, a question of manners, if you will. I look at the popcorn. I look over my shoulder at the brother. He's glued to his phone. I get a little closer to the popcorn. I look to my other side, and the grandmother's kind of sleeping in the way sometimes you can't tell if old people are awake or if they're just contemplating things. So I lean over again, and I reach for the popcorn, and I hear a cough. And when I turn around, the grandmother is staring right at me. Until Chandra returns, neither say a word. I'm still thinking about the seven-layer dip. By the fourth quarter, the Cardinals are getting their butts kicked. As you may remember, both Carson Palmer and his backup, Drew Stanton, were injured, so Ryan Lindley was in there. It's not going well. The Seahawks are up by 20, 
And then Marshawn Lynch rips off this incredible 79-yard touchdown. He just stiff-arms a bunch of guys, including Patrick Peterson. I really have no explanation for what happened next. Other than that, I was, I'm so hungry at this point. I'm just dizzy. I'm operating solely on reflexes. But I leap into the air, and I pump my fists like Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club. I turn around, and now all three of the Petersons are staring at me. I realize two things. One, I have to leave immediately. Two, I'm never going to write a story about this night. <laughs> and I never did. This slightly drunk, undernourished girl came into our house wearing the opposing team's jersey, danced around, and left. That's this is why people hate the media. Uh, so what, what happened when you, when you uh, talked to the publicist afterwards? Was she like, oh, I meant the next week? Or? She's like, how did it go? And I was like, well, you know, there were just the three of them. I don't know. She, you know how they are. I feel like she had no idea. But... Um, <laughs> It was quite an did, experience. Did you send a follow-up note to apologize? No. To I don't think I haven't communicated Peterson's? with any of them. I'm an extremely awkward person. I don't understand why in that setting. <laughs> no no <laughs> opening for awkwardness at all. I know. I seem so smooth and charismatic in my telling of the story, but... I think wearing the Richard Sherman jersey might have yeah. been your first mistake. Yeah. I thought it was going to be like fun, like, oh, you know, trash talk. You're right. There'd be 15 people there. There'd be a lot of young yes. people. You wouldn't be turning to the grandmother every down and saying, suck it, grandma. Yeah. At one point, I was like, is Patrick coming home for Christmas? And she was like, no, he's working. And I really realized what a jerk I was. Uh, he's working. He's a professional football player, and he's working. He has yeah. a job. Yeah. You know that Sherman guy whose jersey you're wearing? He does the same thing the for someone else. The one who dissed yeah, him yeah, publicly, yeah, that yeah, guy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mike Pesco, what is your burwanger? Well, first of all, Stefan, I just want to go back and say that Larry Kelly, yeah, I know a little bit about Larry Kelly. Let me read you a little bit about Larry Kelly. <laughs> you do Kelly. now. I do. Heisman's first winner said no to the pros. In 1936, a year in which the Ivy League was a hotbed of football talent, Yale and Larry Kelly was the first to win a Heisman mm -hmm. trophy. Well, technically, Jay Berwanger was the first winner. The Downtown Athletic Club named him College Player of the Year in 35. But Kelly was the first to win anything bearing the name Heisman. And the story goes mm -hmm. on to say how he rejected a shot at the Detroit Lions and tried to play baseball for a little bit, but went into teaching. He had somewhat tragic life. He was actually an executive of a glove company and then he um he took his own life after teaching at the petty school in new jersey and it was there that i saw his heisman trophy because this story that i'm reading from is yes. my 2011 story and by the way stefan i said hi to your nephew when i went to visit the petty I school i remember i think i told you i remember <laughs> yeah so i know i if you hadn't phrased it that way i think i would have gotten it right so let's go back to the Wayback machine again so Peter Mortel is the winner of the Dyke Edelman Award. Who is this Dyke Edelman? Well, he was the greatest player in the history of Illinois. He here's how how's this for a distinction? He holds the Illinois record for the longest punt and the longest punt return, which is really cool. He lettered. This was a thing that you did back in the uh, forties. He lettered twelve times. He lettered in basketball. He lettered in football track. He was so good in track that he made the Olympic team for a high jump. You know, tall guy. He went to the Olympics. He came in fourth. He almost medaled, forget lettered, he almost medaled for the United States in Olympics, which in a sane world would be his number one thing he was known for, but he was known for his Illinois prowess in a different time, the fact that he went pro. And he put together a pretty nice series of years between high school and college. He did military service. So he played a short time 
uh, in the pros, but he was, as far as I could tell, the second best player on the Tri-City Blackhawks and had a uh, some career NBA totals of 12.5 rebounds a game. But for some of those good teams, he was the second best player. The best account I've read of Dyke Edelman is what he did in high school, where his team mounted a furious comeback against Paris in the state finals. It was written up in one of these greatest games in Illinois high school boys history. And the thing I like most about his team is that they are the Centralia Orphans. The nickname of Centralia High School in Illinois is the Orphans because they had such few funds one time. They went to a tournament and they all had different color shirts. So they just picked a bunch of different red-ish shirts. And they someone joked, oh my God, it's like a bunch of orphans out in the court on these uh, mismatched jerseys. Now, of course, you couldn't name the girls team the Orphans. So what, what is the girls team? of Centralia High called, I'll give you a hint, it's in keeping with the boys' team name. What do you think they're called? Uh, the Widows? Not the Widows. <laughs> widows and Orphans right, would be. Right. Widows and Orphans. Excellent. Okay, yeah. we'll play Password with it. You ready, Mina? Okay. Orphan. Black. Oh, yeah, right? Sorry. So that would be to the- 2015. That would be the Sorry. 2015 Gotta get in the right mind frame. Let's think back to 1940 <laughs> when it was named Orphan. Whale. Wait, no, that's an orca. <laughs> All right, orca whale, that's fine. We'll go, we'll go to Stefan. Stefan, little- Annie's. Yes, they're oh, the Annie's. The orphans in the Annie's, Centralia High to this day, Dyke Edelman's alma mater. Wow. What's the mascot for a team called the Orphans? Is it like a kid it's, dressed up as Oliver it's, Twist? It's like a guy with crazy red hair. <laughs> Wait. Because, <laughs> you know, redhead stuff. Of course. The sun will come out tomorrow. Poor yeah. Stefan, what's your burwanger? Well, I thought that I also might be able to supplement our conversation with Peter Mortel with some fascinating holder history. You know, the untold story of football's first holder, scrappy young Yaley under Walter Camp, chewed out by Pudge Heffelfinger when he dropped a snap. I came up with nothing, though. No holder history. But I did stumble upon the story of a kicking experiment to determine which was better, straight-on kicking or soccer-style kicking. This was a raging debate in the years after the sidewinding Hungarian immigrant Pete Gogolak revolutionized football when he joined the Buffalo Bills of the AFL in 1964 and jumped to the New York Giants of the NFL in 1966. By the following season, Gogolak was joined in the NFL by his brother Charlie, who was on the Washington team, and Garo Yepremian of the Detroit Lions. These scrappy little weirdos had invaded the NFL and their flat-topped, flat-toed traditionalist brothers were mounting a defense of the trade. Sports Illustrated decided to settle the battle once and for all, not by comparing statistics because weather, field conditions, snaps, holds, etc., but by staging a kicking contest under controlled conditions. Seemed like a fair way to do this, right? But it didn't pit the Gogolak brothers against a couple of the straight-on dudes. No, the magazine flute two traditional kickers, Sam Baker of the Eagles and Mike Mercer of the Bills, to St. Helens, England, near Liverpool, to face off against a rugby player, Len Colleen of the local rugby league side, and 1966 English World Cup hero Bobby Charlton of Manchester United. The ensuing story under the headline, Spiking the Sidekick Issue, was written by legendary SI writer Edwin Bud Schrake, who must have come up with the idea as a way to get a junket to England. Shrake <laughs> called in a British aerodynamics expert to study the difference between an American football and a rugby ball. 
Uh, Colleen and Charlton had kicked an American football once before in a practice session a couple of months before the showdown. Colleen was a natural because he often kicked straight on in rugby. Charlton, predictably, had more trouble adapting to kicking the prolate spheroid. The St. Helens Stadium was a dump. Quote, the dressing room was small and cold, Shrake reported. And there was a pit in the floor crusted with old bars of soap for communal bathing. Ew. (laughs) Baker and Mercer looked around as if they had blundered into the room where the yard tools were kept. But Colleen and Charlton were already hanging their clothes on nails along the wall. Those industrious Brits so used to deprivations. The kickers shook hands and examined each other obliquely, Shrake wrote. He established the weirdness by asking the Brits if they understood what was happening in American football and then describing the kickers ogling each other's shoes. Look at that great bloody boot, Charlton said. What does he think this is? Golf? I don't golf. I don't, does it look like a golf shoe, the straight-on kicking shoe? I don't think so. The field was also a dump. Muddy, poorly tended, felt something like rice pudding, Shrake said. The Americans made excuses because they had walked around a lot in London. They hadn't kicked since the Super Bowl six weeks earlier and the runner-up bowl a week before that. Did you know there was a runner-up bowl? I did not. But unsurprisingly, they did outkick the novices. Mercer made 17 of 25 kicks from 30 to 50 yards out. Baker made 14, Colleen 13, Charlton just 10. The two Americans thought the rugby player could make it in the NFL. Charlton thought a kicking specialist sounded like a stupid job. Anybody can do that, he said. You have to be a little big, have a little ball sense, and it's easy, particularly with those big boots. There's no real skill involved, but I suppose if I had all those fellows rushing at me, I wouldn't like it. What did pitting two NFL kickers in a mud pit against two guys who had never kicked an American football before prove? Nothing, of course, but Bud Shrake had to write something to justify his expense account. The conclusion would seem to be that the classicists win the argument, Shrake wrote, A conventional kicker was better from farther away. A soccer kicker wasn't any better from close in. Football coaches shouldn't waste their money looking for immigrant soccer players. It was a really good experiment that have had a mule involved too, right? (laughs) Exactly. And then they would have made a movie about it. Yeah. Then that, then that would have justified the expense. Now you know why print is dead. They, they pay for junkets like this. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thank you, Mina Kimes, for joining us. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Sports Illustrated is the most trusted name in sports journalism, and now with the SI Podcast Network, you can take us with you wherever you go. From sports media to the NFL to fantasy football to the NBA, no one has you covered in the podcasting space like Sports Illustrated. See the entire lineup and learn more at si.com slash podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.